0: The title of our message today is Rejoicing in Suffering. Realizing that's kind of a foreign concept to a lot of people that we would rejoice in suffering. I have a subtitle. The subtitle is Opposition Intensifies from Outside of the Church. In the book of Acts, you have the church growing. It grows from an infant state of 120 people until the end of the book of Acts, where it is all around the known world, especially modern day Turkey, what was then called Asia Minor, and in Rome. You remember that Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, ends up in Rome, where he's writing the prison epistles, and there are several of them that are written from Rome, and they are especially powerful because they're written while he is in prison. And during that time, the church intensifies, but the opposition intensifies as well. And I think we're living in a time where opposition to to Christ, to the message of the Gospel, is intensifying. I believe that we are facing more persecution now than we have in a lot of years, and I believe that persecution is growing, and we are gonna continue to see persecution. Jesus said, rejoice when you are persecuted for my name's sake. That's a passage, that's a a command of Jesus I find that not many of us really do. When we are persecuted, we go, that's unfair. You can't treat me that way. Jesus said, rejoice that you have, that that you uh, are persecuted for me. Now in our text, this is what happens today in our text, and this is why I wanted to cover this large section all at once. In our text, the apostles are arrested. The Sanhedrin gathers together. This is the, the Uh, Supreme Court of Israel, they're in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin debates what to do with them, finally beats them, open public flogging, then lets them go, and they leave rejoicing that they were worthy to be able to be shamed for Christ. That's the account that we have here today. And we're gonna talk about what it means for God to use difficulties, hardships, and sufferings within our lives. We're gonna see it clearly as we take time to look at this passage. Now, this is quite a mindset. To be able to suffer, to be able to be openly, publicly beaten, and walk away rejoicing, saying, thank you, Lord, that I was able to suffer shame for you. But it's not just a mindset that the apostles have. Remember, the apostles are arrested, it happens to them. These are the 12 that follow Jesus. But the Bible tells us this as well. Listen to a few verses. Romans eight eighteen says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time. This is Paul speaking. He's, had, he's suffered greatly. In fact, when he was called by Jesus, he said, I have many things for you to suffer. That was his call. I don't know how that would work as an altar call how many of you here want to give your life to Christ and suffer many things for Jesus and so he said to Paul I have many things for you to suffer so Paul says this in Romans 8 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us in first Peter 5 10 Peter says but may the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while perfect establish strengthen and settle you that is is that God is going to use the suffering in your life to perfect establish and settle you God has a plan or a purpose for suffering this is really important because sometimes you will run into people who will say well if God's a good God then why is there suffering And that question itself, really, atheists have stopped using it in debates. It used to be the suffering and evil question that would be used in a debate, and anyone debating an atheist had to be ready for it because they would eventually say, well, if there's a good God, why is there suffering and evil in the world? The reason they stopped using it is because it's self-defeating. If you're going to bring up evil, then the way you respond to that in a debate is, you believe that there's evil, do you believe that there's good? And if they say, no, I don't believe there's good, then, then there isn't evil either, right? If they say, yes, there is evil and good, then you ask, well, where do we get the ideas of evil and good from? It, it speaks to God. It, the, the, if there's evil, it comes back to God. So it's self-defeating in the end. But, and also, the, another response is that God has a plan and a purpose for suffering. I'll go over them at the end of our study, All right, instead of doing it here. So in Philippians 3.10, it says, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. This is, this is Paul, and he wants to know God, Jesus, in the power of his resurrection. And so do I. I, I want to see the power of the resurrection that brought Jesus out of the grave at work among us. But then he goes on to say this, and in the fellowship of his suffering. I not only want the power of the resurrection, but I want the fellowship of the suffering of Christ because God used the suffering of Jesus on the cross to bring salvation to the world. That was God's purpose and plan in the suffering of Christ and God uses our suffering to do a work not only in us, but a work for the gospel as well. Now, one more thing before we get away from this, and that is as we back away from the book of Acts and look at it from 30,000 feet, We see that suffering intensifies throughout the book, but we also see that the effectiveness of the church intensifies throughout the book, and there is a connection between the two. God uses the sufferings to speak to people for Christ. Now, in verse 17 of our text, this is Acts 5, 17. This is where we are in our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. It says, and remember what's happening now, Not only is Jerusalem being filled with the gospel, started with 120 people, and Jerusalem is affected by the gospel, but now the surrounding villages are beginning to come to Christ. It's moved from the city of Jerusalem to the surrounding villages. Here's the response of the the chief priest and the high priest. Verse 17, Then the high priest rose up. Now we don't know if this is Annas or Caiaphas. I've read people suggesting it's both. Annas was the high priest before before Christ and before Caiaphas. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Annas was the real high priest. Removed by the Romans, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was put into position. You remember in the trials of Jesus that Jesus went to to Annas first and then went to Caiaphas. So Jesus stood in front of them both. So we have a high priest now. This is this is the most important religious figure in the temple in Jerusalem that has now taken exception to the apostles. Then the high priest rose up and all of those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Now he throws in there that they're the sect of the Sadducees. Why? Because the Sadducees who are the aristocrats, the, remember Jesus had a lot of interaction with the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the scholars of their day and were the synagogue leaders. The scribes were scholars as well and handled the word of God. The Sadducees were the priests and those who ran the temple. They were the aristocrats of their day. They were incredibly wealthy. They were seen as incredibly important and the high priest and they only believed in the first five books of the Pentateuch. And they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection they thought when you died that was it everything was about here and now and you remember the sadducees had an interaction with jesus and jesus proved to them the resurrection from the first five books of the pentateuch i don't think anybody else had been able to do that so jesus says don't you remember when god said i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob not i was the god of abraham isaac and jacob for god is the god of the living and not of the dead In other words he said they were still existent i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob so that he proved that there indeed was a resurrection and told them to their face you guys err in that you don't know god nor the scriptures you don't know what they say now that's who rises up and they're upset that the preaching of a resurrected man has permeated jerusalem and is now affecting the villages around jerusalem so there he's 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 enraged it says and they were filled with all indignation. That's the end of verse 17. Then verse 18. And they laid their hands on the apostles. Doesn't mean that they prayed for them. It means they arrested them. <laughs> and they put them into the common prison. There, there, were, there were cells that they could use for people who were higher class. The common prison was not a good place. So they put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out." Now, remember, this is a time of miracles. The miraculous is happening. And God uses an angel. And in this I see God having a bit of a sense of humor. Then you've got the Sadducees that are all upset, the high priest. They don't believe in angels. And God's like, go open the door for them. And he sends an angel to open the door to let them out. And then what does he say? Verse 20, "'Go stand in the temple, and speak to the people the words of life he doesn't let him out of prison and go run for the hills get out of Jerusalem your lives are in danger he's like nope go to the temple and give the people the words of life and here's the words of an angel calling the gospel of Jesus Christ the words of life from a an angel's perspective so then he says to them uh, uh, verse 21 And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who were with him called the council together and the elders of the children of Israel. This is the Sanhedrin, the 70 men that were part of this, this Supreme Court of Israel and Jerusalem. It was made up of Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. These were the important religious leaders of their day, a broad group of people. So they gathered them together. And um, but when the officers, let's see. Um, yeah, uh, verse 21. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning. So I already read that. And um, but when the officers came, uh, where am I at? Uh, let me get halfway through 21 with the elders, and the children of Israel and sent them to the prison to have them brought. So the council gathers together, sends to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we have found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest and the captains of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So now we have the temple guard with the rest of the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin wondering what happened. It says... So one came and told them, verse 25, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching people. Then the captain went with the officers, these are the temple guard, and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest some should stone them. The apostles are doing miraculous work. People are coming to Christ. At this point, it's all Jewish. There are no Gentiles coming to Jesus by chapter five. That will happen soon in our study of the book of Acts, but it's not happening now. And they're afraid. These people, they, they go out and they, they lay hands on the apostles that the people respect and who are, they, they've been, been doing miracles. They're afraid they're gonna be stoned. And when they brought them, they sat them before the council and the high priest and asked them saying, did not we not strictly command you not to teach in the name of Jesus? Now this was earlier, They got a hold of Peter and John. They told them, they threatened them. We don't know what the threats were. They threatened them. And then they said, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They were specifically concerned in preaching in the name of Jesus. Now they bring it up again. We told you not to preach in this name. Why? Well, I think there could be various reasons, but there is power in the name of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, from here on out, you will ask me nothing. But you will ask the Father in the name of Jesus, and he will give you all things. This is the way we are to pray when we ask for something. We ask the Father in the name of Jesus, and then if it's according to his will, we receive it. We don't ask the Holy Spirit. We don't ask the Son. We ask the Father. It doesn't mean we don't talk to the Holy Spirit or the Son. It doesn't mean we don't interact with them. It means, and it doesn't even mean that when I'm talking to Jesus and I find myself just kind of like talking with him about my life and the things that need to happen uh, that I don't necessarily always stop and go, and Father, in the name of Jesus. But when, I, when it comes down to technically praying and asking God for something, I do it to the Father in the name of Jesus. But all three are involved in my prayer life, all right? So they're worried about that. Why? because they see the power of the name of Jesus. We are to teach in the name of Jesus, preach in the name of Jesus and pray in the name of Jesus. It is the name that is given that is above every name that is out there and it should be a priority to us. If the enemy doesn't want us to preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore, then we should be preaching in the name of Jesus Christ because the enemy doesn't want it. it. It goes on to say here, they say, we told you, we strictly warned you not to teach in his name anymore. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend on bringing this man's blood on us. Wherever they would preach the gospel, they would say, and the leaders murdered Jesus and, and he rose from the dead and we're witnesses to that. And so they're now upset. You guys keep bringing us into it. But remember when these very men, the, the, part of the council, stood before Pilate and they said, his blood be on us and our families. They were trying to let, they were trying to get Pilate to get him crucified and Pilate said, this man's blood is innocent. Why do you want to do this? And they said his blood be on us and his family. So they asked for the blood of Jesus to be put on them. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, we saw this principle earlier when they said, you determine whether it is right for us to obey God rather than men. We want to be God pleasers, not man pleasers. We want to obey God and not men. We want to fear God and not fear men. We want everything we do to be towards God. But we do know in Romans chapter 13 and in the book of First Peter that we're told to be in submission to all authority to pray for those that are in leadership, to pray for the king, to, to, they are God's minister to bring peace into our lives. So the Bible clearly says that we are to be law-abiding citizens because God gives governments and there's no government that is in authority without God putting them there. And so we are to obey them and we are to listen to them. So what do we do when they ask us to do something that is ungodly? We don't obey them. I heard one guy put it this way. You follow the law until the law tells you to be a bad Christian. Then you no longer follow it. Now this may seem to be a stretch that a law could be passed that would tell us that, that we can't preach the gospel. But you cannot preach the gospel in China or other communist countries. Marxism, Marxism, is is their religion and you are not free to preach the gospel in North Korea if you preach the gospel then you will be arrested if you have a Bible on you they can arrest you and your family will suffer the consequences in North Korea in Israel today there is the Knesset and Netanyahu normally sided with a certain group of people to be able to be in power, but because part of those no longer wanted him to be in power, he had to to bring in another coalition. The coalition that he brought in was a group of, of politicians that for the last 20 years have brought a law before the Knesset that says that if anybody proselytizes, that is tries to get anybody to change religions from Jew to anything else, then they will be put in prison for a year, and if it is a minor, for two years. Now, they're not worried about Islam. Jews are not becoming Islamic. Jews are becoming Christians. And it's happening, it's not happening a bunch, but it's happening at a greater rate in Israel now than it ever has before. More Jewish people are becoming Christians than, well, than, than since this time. And so they tried to pass a law in the Knesset just a few months ago that if you pre- preach the gospel, you'd be thrown in prison. If you talked to, talk to a Jewish person about Christ as the Messiah, you could go into prison for a year. Now it was voted down, but they are gaining more and more power. You might find the same thing here soon. I don't, today we are, we are looked down upon more and more I believe that persecution against Christians, those who are believing in Christ, will be more and more. It is true that numbers in churches are dwindling, but not numbers in Bible-believing churches. Bible-believing churches that preach the gospel are growing, while at the same time, churches that don't believe in the authority of Scripture and don't preach the gospel are dwindling. The numbers are dwindling in churches, but not in Bible-believing churches, and I think we're gonna suffer some persecution from that, and I think in time, we're gonna see it happen. We certainly will, because that's what happens at the end of the world. Now, let's go on to verse 30. The God of our fathers, now this is the apostles talking, okay? They respond, "Um, we would rather obey God than men. The God of our fathers, they wanna let them know who this God is. is. This is Yahweh, this is the God of our fathers, raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. They say, you're constantly bringing this blood on, on us, and here he is in front of, this is boldness. You murdered him by hanging him on a tree. Him, God, the God of our fathers, has exalted to the right hand to the prince, to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He see, again, no Gentiles are being saved at this point. He's talking to these religious leaders. The God of our fathers brought him out of the grave. You murdered him and he is bringing repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is not just I'm I'm not going to be a sinner anymore. Repentance is I'm going to live for Christ. That's what repentance is. I'm no longer going to live for myself, but I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to do the things he says, which is turning from sin. But it is turning to Christ. not just turning from sin. There's a difference. There's a difference between going, I'm not going to sin anymore and then I'm going to walk with Jesus. That's a difference. And as Christians, that's where we are. The world sees us here. I'm not going to sin anymore. But reality, we are walking with Christ. And the result of having that relationship with Christ is that I now want to please him. I now want to do the things that he wants me to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the result of it. And so he brings repentance and the forgiveness of sin to Israel. And then he says, and we were eyewitnesses of these things. So the apostles are like, we saw him crucified, at least John did. And we saw him rise from the dead and all of them saw that. We're witnesses of these things. And so also is the, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God will give to those who obey him. Now receiving the Holy Spirit happens when we give our lives to Christ. Some have made a big deal about this, obey him. When I was involved in Pentecostal churches and I was for, I don't know, four uh, four or five years uh, during, during my teenage years, we would come up to the altar to pray. Now, the stage was the altar. Now, a real altar is a place where animals were sacrificed, right? In the Old Testament. But we would come up to the altar to pray, to make things right with God because we could not receive the Holy Spirit unless we were being obedient to Him and we wanted to receive the Holy Spirit. And so we came up and prayed and sought God to be able to do that. But here's the thing. The obedience in the life of a Christian is the fruit of a real relationship with Jesus. That you are filled with the Spirit, the obedience proves it. When we moved into a house, I don't know, I guess in in O2, so 20 something years ago now, it was a short sale. The house had been abandoned for a while. There were a couple fruit trees out back and it was just almost dead. They weren't growing any fruit. And the next year when it began to produce fruit, we learned that one of them was a lemon tree and one of them was an orange tree. The fruit proved it. We were like, Hey, look, it's an orange. This is an orange tree. Look, it's a lemon. This one's a, a, a lemon tree. So when we love Jesus, We do the things God calls us to do, and that's the fruit. So all he's doing is pointing that the gift of the Holy Spirit, you don't earn it. You don't go out and do good works to earn the Holy Spirit. That old teaching is backwards. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you begin to do good works. That's just part, you you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is that called? The fruit of the Spirit. So you begin to do those things when you receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is given to those who do good works who obey him. That's because that's our desire when we become a Christian. And it's even the evidence that we are Christians, that we want to do what he wants us to do. If you say I'm a Christian, but I don't want to do what Jesus wants me to do. There's a problem there. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you got a problem because the evidence that you are a Christian is that you are doing the things Jesus wants you to do. So if you say I'm a Christian and I've had this happen to me before. I had a gal that was in an affair tell me one time, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. I'm I'm in, I'm in this, I have a relationship with him, but it's love, it's true love. Which makes you want to gag, it's true love. Like the Princess Bride, true love, (laughs) Nebbage. It's like, so, so they were in a sinful relationship claiming that they walked with Christ. Now, I'm not going to judge them by saying they're not a Christian, but there's problems. And it may be a revelation that they're not. Listen to what the Bible says in John 2, 4 and 5. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his commandments, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. How do you know you're a Christian? Because you're doing the things God told you to do. Now, it also says in the same book, John 1, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So we all know we're struggling with sin. We all have a sin nature. We all have things going on in our lives. I have sin in my life I don't even know of. I have sin that that has been revealed to me over the years that I didn't know. I had somebody tell me one time, I haven't sinned for 12 years, (laughs) except for the incredible amount of pride you had when you said that. Just should have kept your mouth shut and you'd have been okay. All right, so let's just move on from that. I just wanted to bring that up because I've heard that before. Um, You've got to obey him to have the power of the Holy Spirit. You receive the power of the Holy Spirit when you give your life to Christ and begin doing the work that God's called you to do. Verse 33. "Um, And when they heard this, they were furious, plotted to kill them. When When they heard them talk about Israel repentance and forgiveness, the council now, is furious they plot to kill them then one of the council stood up a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel now we know about Gamaliel from other writings besides biblical writings he was a teacher of Paul he was the one that Paul learned from we also know that he said of Paul the only problem I had with him was I couldn't keep him in enough books here's what it says about Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in respect by the people and commanded them to put out the Apostles outside for a little while. And when he he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago Thaddeus rose up claiming he was somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away many people after him. And he perished and all who obeyed him disappeared and now I say to you are dispersed and now I say to you keep away from these men and let them alone for if the plan of this is a work of men it will come to nothing but it is if it is a work of God you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God so this is just wisdom now remember not everybody in the Sanhedrin was against Jesus you had Nicodemus you had Joseph, Arimathea, who were part of the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel seems just to be making some sense and some wisdom. I'm not sure he sold out that Jesus is the Messiah, but at least he's saying, let's just see what God's doing here. So it says they agreed with him, which is good. He's respected by men. They agreed with him. So what did they do? And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and commanded that they should speak no more in the name of Jesus. I don't know that they really agreed with him. They bring them in and they beat them. Now, this doesn't mean that the guards went over to them and started punching them and beating them and that, that's not what it means. It, this would be an open flogging, probably with rods, not with uh, with with lashes. Now you might think, well, uh, an open flogging with rods, you know, n- not that bad, but no, it's bad. It's a bad thing. They, it, this was a deterrent. They would do it publicly because they wanted to deter deter people. They wanted to embarrass the apostles that were doing this work. And so they publicly beat them. They would have stretched them out on the ground, beat them with rods. This was going to happen to Paul, remember when he was in Jerusalem? And Paul said, you're going to beat a Roman? As a Roman citizen, you had certain rights that this couldn't happen to you. That's how bad it was. And Paul kind of, you know, pleaded his Roman citizenship so he, and, and the, the, the centurion said, well, I didn't know you were a Roman citizen. And so they didn't beat him because of it. These guys were beaten, they were beaten openly, they were beaten publicly, and then they were commanded that they should speak, uh, not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in his name they were more concerned with suffering the shame in his name than just the suffering. The beating was extremely painful but cannot be compared to the glory that would be revealed. But they also suffered shame in that they were publicly flogged and beaten and they rejoiced that they were able to suffer shame. Why? Because they know God has a plan in suffering. If anybody knows that it, it's the apostles, they saw it happen with Jesus. Jesus talked about going to the cross. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane to prepare himself for it. He went through the cross because God had a plan with it. Think about this other examples of God having a plan with suffering. Think about Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites sold him to the Egyptian Potiphar, the commander of the guard of the Pharaoh. His wife accused Joseph of rape He was thrown into prison where they put him in fetters and it it crippled him. It says his feet were crippled by them. He never walked the same once he got out of prison. This This is a young man who was sold into slavery by his brothers and finds himself crippled. But he has dreams and because of those dreams he's able to reveal a dream of the Pharaoh. And he saves Egypt with seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And God raises him up to be second in command over all of Israel. And he gets reunited with his brothers. And it's a great account. We're gonna, we'll cover it at some point of how he gets reunited with them. But after their father dies, his brothers come to him and, and they say to him, we remember, now remember, he's still second in command over all of Egypt. And they've moved to the area of Goshen. They've moved into Egypt. And they say to Joseph, We were remembering when your brothers made some mistakes and sold you into slavery. And Joseph says something like this to them. Don't worry. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What what one person means for evil against you, God can mean it for good. And God had a plan for Joseph's suffering, even the suffering of being crippled. They crippled him with fetters. Even the suffering of being crippled. Paul is another example. He suffered greatly when God called Paul, right? I have many things for you to suffer for me. That was the call. Another example is Jesus himself. He's the greatest example of all. How God used suffering to save anyone who would call out upon his name. And so God can use the suffering in our lives. Now, verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house, They did not cease to teach and to preach as Jesus, uh, Jesus as the Christ. So did this shame of being beaten publicly stop them from preaching Jesus? Not at all. That's what they've been called to do. And they're gonna continue to do it. Now, three things in closing. Number one, the suffering of this world, and some of you guys are in the midst of it now, the suffering of this world cannot be compared to the glory that is gonna be revealed in us in heaven what God's going to do in us you're suffering in your body but in your body is going to be revealed the glory of God when we put on the incorruptible and the immortal number two do all things you do for him in the light of the world in the name of Jesus know that there is power in the name of Christ and we should do it in his name and number three do you want to keep his commandments And if you do, this shows that you have a relationship with him. If you say, well, I don't want to keep his commandments, then I don't know that you have confidence that you are really born again. Because being born again brings us to the place where we want to do what he wants us to do. Now, Paul said, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't do, those are the very things that I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. So that's the struggle everybody has. Paul said in Galatians, the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit battles against the flesh. Those are a battle that you have. It's not saying you're not going to have a battle. If that were the case, we would all go, we're all not Christians because we all have a battle inside of us. The question is, do you want to do the things Jesus wants you to do? Do you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life? And then you go, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm just going to keep on doing this. Or do you find yourself failing and then going, Lord, forgive me, I wanna walk with you, help me with this. You've got a stronghold in your life, that's different. But this is the evidence that you've made a commitment to him, that you say, I really wanna serve you, I wanna follow you and I wanna walk with you. God's gonna use the suffering and may we, when we face difficulties and hardships of persecution, the next time you face it, may you rejoice in the persecution, rejoice when we are allowed to suffer shame rejoice even in the sufferings that we face stand with me would you and let's pray together father thank you so much for the revelation that we find here in your word of how the disciples handled this situation and we thank you that they handled it effectively for you and and as an example to us and lord we don't know where our world's going we know they are becoming more and more anti-christ anti-god and don't like us Christians more and more. But Lord, we serve you, we follow you, and we love you, and we will serve you and follow you no matter what. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.